Good evening. Tonight we'll be talking about two topics. <clears throat> the first topic will be the Four Elements Meditation, and the se second topic will be the Buddha as our role model. The Four Elements um, are Earth Element, Water Element, Fire Element, and Wind Element. And we wanted to talk about these for a little bit tonight because it's likely that a portion of you will be taking up this practice at some point during the retreat. And there's a way that we did it that was a little bit different than the traditional, and then we did the traditional way. And I'll explain both of those. In the four elements, each of the elements is composed of a, of a number of characteristics. The first element, earth element, has six characteristics. And the way that, that we pair them are hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness. And we pair them that way because we found it easier to, uh, to do the practice, where uh, one takes a characteristic, for example, hardness, as the first characteristic of earth element, and one searches one's body for everything that's hard. One finds, of course, teeth, fingernails, toenails, the bones of the skeleton and skull, all are within hardness. And it's important to make the distinction that these characteristics are known beyond concept. They're known as experiential body-felt knowings. And so the student with the first characteristic hardness, again, just finds hardness within their body during meditation, during walking, during times that they're eating. This is just their meditative object. They're finding all the places of hardness until they can find them very easily, very quickly, and find all the, the components of the characteristic of hard, hardness at once. And when this stabilizes, then the student, in the way that we approached it, shifts to softness. And the, the reason that this is an easier approach to us is because in the body, whatever is not hard is soft. So since you know hardness, you now can shift the awareness to everything else in the body and allow yourself to really explore that and identify softness. And that's done in the same way. It's done in meditation. It's done walking. It's done when you're doing other things, just the same as the Anapanasati object. You stay with the object of meditation at all times. So the student at this point has explored and found hardness. They've shifted to the opposite softness, and they found that in their body. And they can also notice that they can alternate, probably at this point, between hardness and softness fairly smoothly and completely. And then the rest of the earth elements are found in order. Roughness, then smoothness, heaviness, lightness. And uh, at that point, once those six are known, then the student moves on to the water element, of which there are two characteristics, flowing and cohesion. And again, the, the student finds in their body all the places where there's flowing. There's blood and there's various fluids, and one explores and finds those for themselves. And once flowing is found, then one searches for the, the alternative, which is cohesion. And once this is done, where each of them is known very distinctly, 
then they move on to the fire element, which is heat and coldness. And those, of course, don't need explanation. And then the final element, wind element, is supporting and pushing. And many of you who have done the mindfulness here in the West are aware of the uh, supporting pushing through the awareness of the breath in the abdomen. That's basically the same. The four elements practice, uh, once the, the student has all 12 elements and can find each one distinctly, will then go through the elements, excuse me, go through the characteristics in the grouping of, an, of, of one element. For example, one will learn to hold hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness, lightness, each one distinct and all six together as earth element. And one can actually then say earth element and feel distinctly all six characteristics. The same is done for water element, fire, and wind until a student can just say to themselves earth element and feel six characteristics of that very, very distinctly. Say water element, find the two characteristics of that. Fire element, find those two characteristics. And finally, wind element, and find those two characteristics. At this point, the student is instructed to then cycle through the elements themselves, saying earth element, water, element, fire, element, wind element. And one keeps that as a meditative object until one can do three rounds of the four elements in a minute and feel each characteristic distinctly in each element. At this point, the student is instructed to gain uh, a vantage point above and behind the body, looking, observing the body meditatively, and continuing to cycle through the four elements. Over time, the body begins to glow externally and then internally. Over time, that glow becomes white and bright, and the student continues cycling through the elements. The white turns into a crystal body which becomes brilliant and diamond hard, or seemingly diamond hard. And the student then is still with that, uh, with the elements, and then is um, present with the crystal body. With the crystal body, the student then is instructed to look for space in the crystal body. And the space, for an example, would be like the pore where a hair on your arm is coming out. That would be a place one might look for space. And over time with this, this crystal body, meditating on it for fairly long periods of time, looking for the space, the student will be, in, will be able to uh, experience and see within themselves the four elements break down into the kalapas, the rupa kalapas, which are form kalapas. There are a couple of benefits in, of doing this practice. The first benefit is that it's very helpful to learn to balance the elements within the body. Uh, for example, I did this practice as the first practice I did on the retreat with the Sayadaw because I'd, had some, I'd been in several bad accidents and had some body issues that were preventing me from sitting for long periods of time. 
So it was recommended that I do this practice. And that allowed me, by learning the different elements in the, in the characteristics, to apply the characteristic or element that was out of balance with its opposite to create uh, a better, a better uh, relaxation in the body to do concentration meditation. This practice leads to a very deep, visceral knowing that nothing exists in this body, my body, that is, out, that is outside the form elements. And it's actually quite profound to have that experience because I think we all have a belief that there's something inside that's, that's me. And when you break it down to the four elements, there isn't. Sometimes after this practice, the progression can be either into the Vipassana or back into the Samatha, where the student will be directed to do the 32 body parts meditation. And once that's complete, the skeleton meditation. And completing that, one uses the back of the skull for a white casina to then use white casina into a first jhana. So sometimes it's used that way. It's not often used, but it can be. But coming back to the casinas, of course, uh, with the body being more balanced, the student can often have greater concentration to then apply to the, uh, to the jhanas. Anything to add on that? Yeah, so, so just to relate this back to the Sayadaw's talk on the first evening in the chart, it, you can see in the purification of mind that there's the mindfulness of breathing, which is what most everybody here is doing at this point, and then there's all, also the four elements meditation, which at the beginning, everything that Stephen has just described is still within the Samatha path, even though it is a momentary concentration object, so you're never going to get jhana with the four elements. But you can get um, access concentration. So you can imagine with this rapid succession, three times in a minute, really feeling viscerally all of the, these elements in, in their both individual component parts and in the four element groupings. This is a lot of, um, this is a high level of momentary concentration that's developing that then, you know, theoretically can be used to analyze the kalapas as they split apart. So, um, you know, it's really, we thought it was really brilliant the way this this path is set up because if one tries to do this and then needs a higher level of concentration, you can go from the four elements up to white casina and then do all the casinas, then come back to the four elements again with a higher level of concentration if that's needed to um, analyze the kalapas. Because really, until you've analyzed a kalapa, you're not even doing vipassana. You're still doing to practice. So, you know, again, going back to why do we start with the jhana practice, it really does facilitate uh, the potential for a higher possibility of actually analyzing the kalapas after the samatha path ends. And um, it's quite a profound experience even just seeing the kalapas, as we we mentioned on the first night that we spoke, because to really... um, know oneself, not at a conceptual level, or at least one's body. You know, this is, of course, one of the five (laughs) aggregates is materiality. So we're just focusing on materiality here. Rupa kalapas means material subatomic particles. And then, of course, mentality, the, the kinds of mentality is a whole separate practice that comes after this because 
mentality, of course, is a lot more subtle than materiality. So again, the progression gets more and more subtle. But, um, but it is really a very profound practice, and we didn't want to leave the retreat without sharing this way of doing it with you because we found that it was um, easier to start with the complementary pairs, starting with, say, pairing hardness with softness, and then going to the traditional sequencing afterwards. And um, that way of doing it is a lot easier. So we know that you aren't practicing this right now, but all of these audios will be in the library, and the, the Sidel may, may give additional talks on the four elements as well. Yeah, I did, I did say that I would read the traditional order of the characteristics, and I did omit that. Uh, so what we did was after we worked with them in these pairs, we went back to the four elements, and we did them, the characteristics, in the order that uh, is traditional. And for completeness, I'll read that. The earth element order is hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water, fire, wind are the same. Flowing cohesion for water, fire, heat, coldness, and wind elements supporting pushing. The one other thing I would say about this practice, if and when any of you do it, is that the basic instructions conceptually are the same. You stay with your object all the time. You never leave it. You're on it whenever you're walking around doing anything. Uh, unless you've gone through the jhanas, then you might keep Anapanasati as your base and just do this when you were sitting. So, you know, like when I did it, it's kind of interesting, actually, because we each did it different ways. Stephen did it when he first started. I don't mm. know if you want to... Yeah, I, as I mentioned earlier, I started with Anapanasati, but was having so much physical problems with sitting that it was recommended to do this. So I did the four elements first, and then when I completed that, did the 32 body parts... Did, from there, did the skeleton meditation, which is one of the 32 body parts. And then from there, had started on built, developing white casina. And uh, the side I recommended that I stop and go to Anapanasati, which I did. And then I went up to the normal progression at that point. Right, whereas I started out with Anapanasati and went through the traditional progression, which we shared in our chart the other night, and didn't do four elements until after sitting for several months, going through all the casinas and doing the Brahma Viharas and the other meditations. So by then, you know, my concentration was extremely high, and um, and then the retreat ended. So you know, it was at the very last part of the retreat, like one day before the retreat ended, that um, the experience of the the Rupa Kalapas came up. So needless I, to say, I was kind of hoping the retreat might have gone a little bit longer, but that's the way it goes. So <clears throat> I did want to just comment on one one thing you said. You talked about keeping the uh, Anapanasati or White Casino as your base while you're doing four elements. And, and that is that uh, Sidar recommends, if you're doing, generally he recommends doing up to fourth jhana before doing four elements uh, in that progression. And normally he recommends that you keep one period a day where you're doing the jhanas, you're doing the first four jhanas or the first eight jhanas, whatever, right. whatever you're doing, to keep that the jhana energy and the brightness and the, the real laser-like quality of the energy to then apply to things like four elements. Right, so... And the rest of Vipassana. Even when I was, when both of us were doing the Brahma Viharas and then going on to the protective meditations, there was one sitting a day going up to, you know, in our case, going up to the eight jhanas um, to keep the concentration really sharp because it does start to dissipate if one doesn't stay with it. So um, 
to whatever level your concentration has gone, keeping it to that every day, one sitting, if you ever go on, would be um, very advantageous to be doing. And also, if you're doing the Vipassana, if it feels like the concentration isn't as sharp as it should be, then normally the student's instructed to watch that and then go into a period of jhana and then go back to whatever one's, right. one is working with. Yeah, it's really that, that laser-like focus that allows for that... Um, for the analysis of something that's moving as fast as a subatomic particle. So, um, and, the, and these the kalapas really look like a kind of a pile of fireflies or like a fire a campfire that's going out, just flickering, uh, really on and off is the way it looks. It's really quite um, powerful. Yeah. Especially when you're seeing yourself as that. So that that is the four elements meditation. We'll move now then to uh, the second part of our talk, which is really looking at this practice more broadly. There won't be any particular meditation instructions, but we wanted to have this final part of our talks with you really be, hopefully, a little bit inspiring and really looking at the Buddha and the history, the long, long history and lineage of yogis throughout the eons of time that have done this very practice that you're sitting here today, right now, doing. And there have been probably tens of thousands of yogis, just like us, just like you, sitting. um, Some of them in the old days were probably risking their lives to do this. I have this image of people going out into forests or caves, you know, thousands of years ago with burning questions that, you know, they really wanted to find out for themselves through their own direct experience, some of the deep questions of life that would draw one to this path, like, you know, who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And what's going to happen when I die? They ask these same questions that we ask today that there really aren't answers to other than the direct experience of what is beyond our relative reality and understanding. So I imagine them going into these caves and forests and even the Buddha, you know, when he left the palace, what did he do? He looked for and was inspired by the renunciate. You know, he saw sickness and old age and death and thought, wow, there's a lot of suffering out there. This this could happen to me. And he went out and looked for the wisest people of his day that he could find and it was the renunciates who inspired him, really, to leave his home, that maybe there was somebody out there, there was something that he could know that was beyond just the everyday reality of, of you know, comfort and or suffering in life. And these people weren't actually Buddhists, because, of course, there was no Buddhism in the day of the Buddha. When he went out of the palace, there was just yogic practitioners and others who were doing practices of the day, including the jhanas and some of the other things that we are practicing here. And he learned from, he learned from a few teachers himself. He learned the, the first through seventh jhanas from one teacher and the eighth jhana from another teacher. And then he extended that understanding beyond what he had learned into vipassana and, and other aspects of the practice. And um, so this has been going on for many, many thousands of years and many yogis doing exactly what we're doing here, really 
really trying to uh, experience directly for themselves what is beyond our, our relative perception of reality. We have one yogi that we worked with who talked about the practice you know, with the same kind of warrior spirit that I imagine people throughout the ages have had. And she said, um, stay with the object as if liberation depends on it. And I think that's really, that's really the kind of spirit that um, has kept the Buddhist lineage alive over all these years, was that spirit of really, I must know. I must know for myself what's beyond everyday reality. I look at it that, that the Buddha really is a, um, a meditative role model. Uh, he started out with his initial experiences as a young man, as we all know. Uh, he, as Tina said, he learned the first through seventh jhana from one teacher and the eighth from another. And he did it uh, presumably throughout his, his life. And in fact, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, it reports that his last meditative action was to do the jhanas, the one first through eighth jhanas, and then back down to one. And then he went back up to one, two, three, four, and coming out of the fourth jhana was unbound. And in speaking of that, of what unbound meant in the jhana sutta, the Buddha said, this is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the end of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding. Throughout the suttas, as you know, in many, many instances when the Buddha was speaking of right concentration, he spoke of jhana, and he gave basic jhana references at that time. This is a path, a stage of the practice of purification of mind, and so it's it's useful to have you hold it as that rather than to get too, again, too focused on the result, to really appreciate that by engaging this practice, by returning to your object again and again, by not picking up the hindrances, by not allowing thoughts to invade your relationship with the object, your purification of mind is developing. I also wanted to point out that the Buddha was a Samatha yogi, in the this, in this Samadhi Sutta, the Buddha talks about four types of individuals. The first individual is a Samatha yogi with no insight. The second is an insight yogi with no Samatha. The third has neither Samatha nor insight. And the, fo- the fourth has both Samatha and insight yogi. And the Buddha recommended that if one was a yogi, a Samatha yogi, for example, they should find someone who was an insight yogi and learned from them, and vice versa. But he thought the best, and he himself was both a samatha and insight yogi. So certainly for us, it's worth exploring what that meant to him and what that can mean to us by engaging in this practice as you're doing. There are many yogis throughout history who have taken up this practice, and as Tina said, the idea of people through the centuries going into forests and jungles and caves to take up this practice and the danger that they faced with animals and snakes and 
bandits, yet they still were so drawn to this practice and so drawn to commit themselves that they engaged it because the, the purification of mind and eventually liberation were so, so important to them. And it's, you know, the way I look at it is as we're doing this practice and as we're having these, the hindrances and the defilements come up and challenge whether we can stay on our object, there's kind of a way that as we don't give them attention and they lose energy, there's a way that they're coming back into the purified mind. They're joining that process. And the idea of that, of the hindrances and defilements really re-entering the purification always is such a wonderful picture to me. I really feel like when we do this practice that we're really coming home to the purified mind that the Buddha regarded so highly. Yeah, so I think this came up actually in an interview today. Somebody was asking me, why has the Samatha practice been so, you might say, neglected in the West and maybe other places too, but you know, just speaking as a, as a Western practitioner. And I think it's really important what Stephen said, that the Buddha was a Samatha yogi. He wasn't a dry insight yogi. And even though he does, of course, say that that's possible and it is one way to do the path, for us, he is the role model. And I think it's, um, it's worth understanding that that really was his path. And so for those of us who do feel drawn to the Samatha practice as a foundation for the Vipassana, instead of feeling as in many ways it's come to be regarded that, oh, that's not really necessary or why waste time doing that, that the Buddha did it. And there was a reason because there was and there are now benefits to undertaking the Samatha practice as a foundation for insight as well as a refuge for the Vipassana practice. There's a lot of, um, in the uprooting of Vipassana, there can be a lot of, um, well, it's a very fast practice, as you can see from the description of the four elements, but there's also a lot of uprooting that's happening. And so to have the Samatha as as a stable base and also those practices as a refuge we talked about the protective meditations. Those are all samatha practices as well. To have those as a basis for that dramatic uprooting that happens in the vipassana is really um, provides many benefits, which I think is, you know, probably why the Buddha continued to teach all three stages of the path throughout his entire life. So. For us, we, we want to really encourage you all to, um, to take advantage of this opportunity. The conditions here are just amazing. And to give a little bit of contrast, we're going to tell a few um, I walked a mile in the snow in the winter to get to school stories about, about both the retreat we did with the side out as well as some of what we've heard about um, studying in other places and the conditions that other people, uh, other yogis sort of have to deal with to really just contrast with the good karma that you all have in being here. And um, 
So the retreat that we did at Four Springs, it was just a wonderful retreat. And the setting, it wasn't a retreat center set up for Buddhist meditation. It was set up for mostly weekend retreats and was in a forest, so the setting was very beautiful. And um, we did a lot with, with what was there, but the buildings were all separate from each other. So in you know, March and April in Northern California, it rained almost constantly for a good portion of the retreat. And it was muddy and you know, people's boots were getting stuck in the mud and um, they had to build a sort of tarp over the side to keep us dry as we were trying to enter the meditation hall. And, and the side house, Kuti, people would line up and wait for one or two hours outside with their umbrellas in the rain and for interviews every day. So it all, you know, it was a, it was a great retreat, but it, it certainly um, didn't have some of the advantages of being here. And then, of course, we haven't been to Burma, but we have, you know, known many people who have been to Pawak Monastery, which is, you know, an amazing experience to be with that many people practicing and so um, having such a deep love of the Dharma and commitment. Um, but, you know, you might be lucky to get one minute with the side out there. And here you can sit in the hall and meditate with him every day if you want to, numerous times a day. You know, people there would, would give a lot to be able to do that. And um, I've heard stories of, in fact, Carol Wilson, who teaches at IMS, has spent much time in Burma and talks about how she was in a kuti one time for months. I don't know, it might have been a four-month retreat. And the entire time, they were building kutis all around her kuti. And she got to listen to jackhammers and backhoes and hammering and sawing and sanding all day, every day, while she was meditating constantly. And... Um, even at Pawak Monastery, when they come in to clean the meditation hall in the middle of the day when everybody's in there meditating, the cleaning people are chatting to each other and smoking. So, and this is perfectly normal. Everybody just thinks that this is, this is the conditions that they work with. So just to give a contrast you know, to the good karma that you all have to be in a place where you have so much access to the Saidao, where you can meditate in a hall like this that for the most part is extremely quiet and pristine, to have these surroundings that are so beautiful, and your own room. You know, we've heard stories of Burmese women sleeping eight to a room on the floor in the monastery. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really wonderful good fortune that we all have to have a place like this to practice. It's just exquisite. And we'd really encourage you to take advantage of that. I think we'll... Do you have anything to add to that portion? I actually wanted to add one thing, and that is uh, really with seeing so many of you uh, come through an interview, there really is, uh, in my view, and I think Tina's view, a really strong uh, aptitude and ability among this group to do this practice. So many of you are really progressing well in the practice, and I think you should really take that to heart uh, because, you know, it isn't a stretch to say that there are certainly uh, some of us who have done this practice in previous lives, 
So for some people, it's a matter of a remembering rather than a learning. It's a reminder of how to do the practice. So I think be open to that within your own experience as you're finding yourself doing this practice and you notice things about how to do it, that sometimes it's easier to hold it as a remembering rather than a learning. I think we'll stop there for now and take any questions you might have about anything. It doesn't have to be just about tonight's talk. Yeah, the 32 body parts actually is a practice that's done in the Samatha. Yes. You can see it down here. I, I don't have them all memorized, but yeah. there's a list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they're done in groups. Yeah, but then why plus 10? That's my question. Because I have heard of the 32, but not. Right. Well, we're authorized to teach up to the analysis. So that is actually the analysis of the Kalapas. So I think probably it would be best to defer that. Who, who, I guess, and who did your group? I guess, and who did? And then with any six days, what do we learn? Who plus six days? Among the Dijupas, first 20 are up any. Again, 12 are one element. Then, higher element, four. Four group. Then, one, one element, six group. What do we learn for the two parts? So the question is, is um, what advice we would have about how to interview with the Saida, what to bring to him for interview. Yeah, we should say that um, the interviews starting, I believe, tomorrow will be with the Saida and, and Bonte, and um, we'll be at a different time. Just as we've been doing as needed, it'd be good to come twice a week because, you know, we want to make sure everything's going, but just come as needed beyond that. Um, well, I can start. And then, Go ahead. Yeah. So it's good to be noticing how long you're staying on the object because that really is a sign of the, the continuity of your concentration, and prob- you know, probably the side will ask you that. So it's good to know how to respond. Not that you're going to be looking at your watch every time you're sitting all the time, but just to have a sense of how long are you staying on the object and what your continuity is. And that's really true throughout whatever stage of the practice you're on. You, you want to sort of have a sense of um, your stability there. 
And then if you have any questions, you know, be prepared. Be prepared to be concise because the interviews are, are an hour and a half per day and this is how many of you there are. So um, be prepared to be concise with your answers as well as your questions would be a few pieces of advice I might have. And, and as to her point about um, how long you can stay on the object, typically it's like in meditation, how long generally you're staying with the object without interruption, also in the rest of your day as you're walking, as you're doing other things. Because what the question's about is the continuity as well as how long at one time you can stay uninterrupted. And if there's problems with that, then to raise those as well. But I think your point is, is actually good, that there is a way this practice is quite simple. And it really is staying with the object. That's, that's the, the instruction. And typically, that's the instruction the Sidao gives to people, is he'll say, focus on the breath. Because that is the practice. And I think for a lot of us, we really make it a lot more complicated for ourselves. Because we decide there's all these other things. What does breath mean? And how do I focus? And how do I bring attention? And, and we just let ourselves get complicated with all of it. And we think there's got to be more. So we try to find things to uh, involve that have no business in it. So the people that do well with the practice really do keep it simple. And I think, uh, as I've said, that's one of the things I think I brought to this practice was coming from 25 years in the Zen tradition. I had no idea what the jhanas were. And so when the Sadao gave me instructions, I just took literally what he told me, and that's what I did. So I think that was really a benefit to me to not have a lot of uh, ideas about it. And I think now, if I did the practice, I'd have to be really good about that, about putting down everything I know from before and really being fresh with the object again each time and then bringing that information to the Sadao. Yeah, and also in the interviews, if you feel that you're having a lot of hindrances and want to have a more extensive conversation, I believe that Venerable Ujagara will be available for you know having a more lengthy um, interview periodically, um, if necessary. So, so that's also an option, and you can work that all out with them when you when you interview with them. Well, you're not trying to... Get, well, the, the question first is about thinking and the practice, about what to do about the thinking. And the, the first thing is the thoughts aren't to be repressed. You're not trying to get rid of them or 
do anything with them. You're trying to not be interested in them. You're trying to just not go to the thought. Because we can have thoughts while we are with the object, but if we don't go to the thought, if we don't leave the object to go and entertain the thought and give it energy and, you know, play with it, just just fantasize or delve up memories, that's what we're talking about. Because the more you stay with the object, the more you don't chase after thoughts or memories or emotions or you know, get involved in a wrestling match with your hindrances and defilements, the weaker they get, the stronger you get on your object, and the more your concentration develops and your practice develops. And the second part of your question was something about what to do uh, or what, what's thinking's relationship to jhana. And in the actual absorption jhana, as it's presented, uh, there is no thinking in the jhana. If there is thinking in the jhana, it's not jhana. It's access. It's, ac- it's probably access concentration. Yeah. So, I think, and then how that relates back to the practice. Once uh, the concentration is sufficient for jhana to start arising, um, there can actually be a way of being where we are able to do things without really thought arising, even. And we may have mentioned this briefly when we talked about silence on, I think, the second night, that there is a way of actually functioning and moving around and doing things where there doesn't have to be a sense of thought and the words of a thought arising in order to do that. So instead of, say, what our normal kind of internal self-dialogue might be, I need a drink of water, and then I drink it, and you know, there's just an impulse that can be felt before action. So there, you know, potentially there does come a point where thinking isn't really, thinking as we do it in our, our normal everyday life isn't really necessary and yet functioning can still happen. So you know, usually the way it goes is that, like you talked about the thoughts being, um, there's thoughts that are out here but you're not really giving them much attention and they just go away. Well those might just get quieter, quieter, so they're just a whisper. And so if those are arising and you're not actually turning towards them, it's just like hearing a sound outside and not turning towards that. You, you know, it's in the field of awareness, but it's, it's not actually distracting at all. And, and it just, you know, it can gradually subside to the point where there really is, is not hardly any thought happening. Well, there is an awareness that you're in the jhana. There's awareness of the object. It's not like I'm in a jhana, I'm sitting here in a jhana. That's not really what's, that's not the experience. If that's the experience, that's access concentration. So in the jhana, there's awareness of the object. There's awareness in the object. So it, you know, it's one of those things that's a lot easier to experience than it is to describe. Well, it's maybe not easier, but but once one... (laughs) It's easier to describe. (laughs) That goes back to last night's talk, right? (laughs) But once you experience it, it's known. It's, you know, like eating chocolate. 
that kind of thing. There's also a presumption (laughs) in your question that you are your thoughts. I think, therefore, I am. And that's, this is, I mean, this it's is the When we talk about the thinning of the me, this is where it, it is really profound to, to have awareness without a sense of me. Yeah. Right. Well, you can think of it this way. If I asked you whether you, you were wearing a shirt in meditation, would you have to think about the answer? I hope not. <laughs> right. And the answer is the same. You won't need to think about it if the jhana factors are there. You'll, you'll know they're there by experience. Yeah, at the point bef- before the concentration gets really strong and you're sort of hovering right around jhana, it's not that necessary to be spending a lot of time wondering about the jhana factors and so on. And this is where the teachers will give you specific instructions if you need to be doing checking of jhana factors at the time when that's, that's not a, a, a misuse of your effort. It gets real specific in there. So it, you know, that's where working with the teachers is really important. Well, one last thing I'd say is <laughs> I just want you guys to know how extraordinarily helpful you've been and how kind you've been in answering every single question that I could come up with. Well, that's the, that's the dilemma, isn't it? Because how do you sort of monitor that without then thinking and going off your object? So just do the best you can. The most important thing is to stay with the object. So, and if you are with the object, if you're not going to it, if you're not going to the thought, that's the distinction that we make. If the thought is just passing, as I said, like a cloud in the sky, and you're not doing anything about it, then that's fine. What we're talking about is where you're leaving your object to go to the thought or go to the motion or go to the memory, and you find yourself, oops, I've been playing with this memory from third grade, you know, and you come back to the object, you, you've been off the object. So yeah. that's more what we're talking about. So in terms of continuous, you'd, you'd want to not be going off to the point where you're having to reapply uh, the attention. So, you know, when the side when is asking you about how long you are on the object continuously, if you're having to reapply over and over and over, that would not be so much of the continuity. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay. Other questions? Yes. Why 
Yes, we <coughs> we don't know that. Um, no, our our answer. We're just going to say that when we did the practice, we had Sayadaw's book, Knowing and Seeing, and he told us a four-element meditation, and so we know those four elements. If he had said five elements, then we would have known there were five elements. <laughs> Thank you. It's been great for us. I mean, really, we uh, first started writing the book uh, really with people like you in mind. We decided to start it because we got a few questions about how to practice, and we let the Sayadaw know we were interested in pursuing it, and he said he really wanted it finished by the time of this retreat. So um, he was as much of a taskmaster on finishing the book as he was when we were in the jhana (laughs) practice with him. But he was, he, was, he was very kind to us. He, really, he was all over the world teaching, and each time we would email him manuscripts, and he, he would review them, and within 48 hours we'd have suggestions, and he'd continue to instruct us, explaining why he was saying things he was saying. There were a lot of things that we know now, the context for, that we didn't know when we were doing it. So it was really a great learning for us as well. And, um, yeah, when we, we actually waited two years after the experience before even starting to write the book because we just didn't know if anybody was interested, frankly. And um, Stephen had lunch one day with our friend Robert and another former monk from Pauag. And, um, and this was right at the time that this retreat was announced. And we had heard that it was full with a wait list. And that's when we thought, well, maybe, maybe somebody is interested. And we really wanted to offer whatever we had to offer so that people who were had that level of commitment could benefit in some way and um, you know to give back to the Dharma yeah absolutely and also just really as a gratitude to the Sayadaw and to the Buddha for what we received and what a huge benefit it's been to us and we tell people that even now after three years there's still a way that regularly we feel the purification still working so this is not something that once you do it here and you leave there's no effect it's it keeps going. It's very concentrated stuff. Yeah, it's been a real gift for us to um, sort of tend the garden for these few days and have the flowers start blooming and that, that the Dharma is watering. So thanks to all of you for giving us mm, that indeed. joy. Sure. What you should do is uh, interview in the next couple of days and ask the Sayadaw, just explain your reasoning and ask whether it seems appropriate for you to switch to the four elements meditation. And then we'll he can. Start with four elements and then go to the... Yeah, you can talk with him about that, what's appropriate and what's not. And 
you can come to a solution together. <laughs> my question to you is I'm, I'm hearing you say that by returning to the object just staying with the object and staying on the object as much as possible coming back when I'm off the object that vichara will arise in a more natural way rather than in a like a big effort on my part <coughs> Mm, yes. Well, there is that, and then there's also the effort to have more continuity that, you know, we talked about, and this actually came up in an interview I had today with really looking with some precision at places where continuity can be um, cultivated. And, you know, like in between sitting and standing up, that's an easy place for there to be a breakdown. I think maybe right. we talked about this last night. Um, and there's, you know, if you're trying to cultivate uh, vichara, there can be things, uh, you know, I hadn't even thought about this until I got a question in an interview today about my own practice. What did you do that worked, you know, sort of thing. And so I had to think about it. And for example, I tried to never go more than, say, an hour without doing a long sitting. So that's another way that the continuity um, I think I tried to keep the lid on the pot and not be letting it off, they'd say to go for two hours to have lunch and then take a rest right after. So again, this was just me, but if you're going for two or three hours and only having a one hour break in terms of that all day for your, your entire conscious waking hours, that's gonna get some juice going. You know? So that's another way within, that's sort of the larger continuity of, of a day can be a skillful means to, to not let the concentration wane over a long period of like two hours and then have to regain it. I don't know if that's helpful, yes. but yeah. Yes. So we, we want to close um, really by saying a few words about the Sidow. He won't mind that we do this, but um, he's. This is really an incredibly rare opportunity that you all have to study with him, and he, he may not come back here. This may be his last time here. We don't know, but um, to really take advantage of the opportunity, he's a tremendous teacher, and his his commitment level to the awakening of all beings and full enlightenment is just huge. Huge. He's given his whole life to this. He's been a monk since he was 10 and has been in the Dhamma for a long time, decades, decades and decades. And not only is he a teacher, but he's a yogi. He goes off, he does his own retreats. He's just done a very, very long retreat. And as you can see for yourselves, he's in the hall a lot. He's, 
he likes to do the practice, and he, he is a, just a dedicated practitioner and role model that for us is very inspiring because there are teachers out there who teach, but they may not continue to practice, and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But to have a role model like him who is so committed to practicing and then to be able to do it with him you know, in the hall is, is just a tremendous opportunity. And um, it's really great karma for all of you to, to have that, to have this small of a group with him. I mean, I can't tell you what people in Burma would give to be able to have that opportunity when there's 800 or 2,000 people at the monastery there. So. Um, yeah, I also want to thank the Saidao and all of you as well. I mean, the, the Saidao really is an amazing practitioner to us and has really been very kind to us. Uh, was very rigorous with us when we practiced with him, but I really understand why now the kind of the kind of thoroughness that he required really led to where when he says there's John a mastery that's really true. So really, as you work with him and as he is asking more and more of you, really trust the fact that he's seeing that that's within your capacity to uh, to do. And also, we want to thank uh, Ujagara as well. Yeah, we actually want to say a few words about him. Hopefully that's okay. Um, and I think everyone's had a chance to meet him now. And he, he's been a monk for almost 30 years. I don't know if everyone knows that. I'm assuming he ordained at a young age and um, really has been, been a very, he's a very advanced practitioner, a scholar, and is um, also a very deep yogi himself. I mean, this is really what he does is practice. And um, I've personally enjoyed very much getting to know him and work with him in the interviews. He's not only is he very learned and advanced practitioner, but he's a warm and wonderful person to um, be supporting you in the practice. So if you do feel that you want to go to him for more in-depth kinds of um, interviews, you can you know, work all of that out as you your interview needs come up. Um, but we'd really encourage you to take advantage of, of him being here as well. We also want to thank the Forest Refuge, the staff, and the administration for allowing us to come. And really, uh, we came as guests, and we feel like we leave as family. And it was really a lovely experience for us to be here and to be here with all of you and see you all starting out. And everyone doing so amazingly well. I mean, it's just really uh, very, very impressive. You're all putting in the hard work already, and that's what it takes, the dedication, the hard work, and you're willing to listen to how to do more hard work. So that really speaks to your credit. Yeah. So... <laughs> well, the side out wanted us to stay for four months, and he, he, he got at the leg shackles, but we managed to avoid that. <laughs> yeah, this was the first question when we came in after not seeing for we three were, years. We weren't even done bowing. We, I mean, we, our heads were... We, we were in our second bow, and he says, stay for four months? <laughs> <laughs> but then we'd be yogis, so we wouldn't be offering the Dharma if we were doing that anyway. But, yeah, so really to encourage you... Um, to have an ease about the practice, but also have a rigor. Have a rigor with it and really take every waking moment, this is what you're here for. Our friend who said, stay with the object as if liberation depended on it, I think she pretty much got it right. Yep. You know? That, and, that and was her mantra for herself during her, she yeah. did about a five-month <clears throat> retreat. 
this practice. Yeah, the conditions will never be better. And um, so we really wish you a wonderful retreat. Many blessings to all of you. And with that, we will dedicate the merit of today's practice to the benefit of all beings everywhere. <laughs>